You're tuned into This Side of Reality on Totally Radio, a Brighton Digital Festival podcast about digital culture, art, and the human. Presented by CJ Thorpe and created by Vasil Jagalov, Brighton Digital Festival and Totally Radio. Hey everyone, you're listening to This Side of Reality podcast, episode two, Not Just a Hat Rack. Every year, one in four of us will experience some mental health difficulties. It's incredibly prevalent, yet still highly stigmatised and often invisible. In this episode, we want to talk about how digital technology can be detrimental to our mental well-being, yet also a powerful force for good. I want to ask about that conflict, the, the harsh reality of online interaction, and also how we build toolkits to help people. As well as recording this podcast, we're broadcasting right now live on totallyradio.com. We're at 68 Middle Street in Brighton in front of a small studio audience. Welcome, everybody. (laughs) Excellent, excellent applause. They're not cued at all. I'm Chris Thorpe-Tracy, and joining me this evening to talk about digital technology and mental health Let's meet our panel of three experts. Hello, I'm Tasha Mansley. Um, I run the Role Models Project at Sussex University, um, where we train students to run PSHE-related workshops on a one-to-one level with students in the local school. Um, I also facilitate gender, sexuality and relationships workshops to older teenagers. Um, And for the Brighton Digital Festival, I'm running a workshop for parents and carers called The Secret Life of Teens. Hello, my name's Mark Brown. I do mental health stuff generally. Um, I have experienced mental health difficulties myself, and for about the last decade, I've been faffing about trying to make life for people with mental health difficulties better. Some of that's been physical, some of that's been digital, and some of that's just been basically waving my arms about, (laughs) trying to get people to pay attention. Hi there, um, I'm Alex Harvey, I'm from Grassroots Suicide Prevention, um, we're a local charity, we're based in Brighton and we use education, awareness raising and innovation to, to try and uh, kind of help prevent suicide in our communities I guess and I'm here today particularly to talk about the uh, mobile phone app that we created called Stay Alive um, and it's, it's a resource that's available on Android and Apple um, and can be downloaded for free but we'll talk more about that later. Thank you, guys. Tasha, how did you come up with the idea for Secret Lives of Teens workshops? Where does that come from? Predominantly, I'm working with young people rather than parents. Um, But from the workshops I've been doing with them around mental health with the Role Models Project and also around gender and relationships and sexuality with my other work, the themes of online and digital technology and social media through all of those topics kept coming up and it kept kind of... It became a thing that through everything that became a running theme. Um, and so I thought that was something with the Brighton Digital Festival that would be really interesting to explore. Um, but then when I came to plan it, I realised that really it wasn't young people that needed this work as much. Uh, definitely there needs to be more education there. But for a two hour workshop, what I thought was more productive was maybe giving parents and the people that are in these young people's lives all the time the tools and understanding to then empower them to have those conversations with their teenagers and give them those resources rather than the young people I've been working with, kind of they're the experts on this stuff and they, the frustration was that their parents didn't get it. Um, so that's kind of where the idea came from. What is it that they're saying? What bothers young people most about their lives online? 
I think it's interesting because talking to them and doing focus groups in preparation for this workshop is actually quite a there's actually quite a positive response around <laughs> online and social media from young people and the worries are coming from their parents um, and the conflict there is the the not being able to understand that um, and not being able, yeah kind of coming from two different places. I think all of the issues that young people are experiencing, particularly around mental health, that we see that are coming from, like, that can sometimes originate from things online as well, like cyberbullying or, like, worries about body image and, like, sexting and porn and, like, lots of stuff that we see as, like, parents especially are often seeing as, like, big red flags for this is the fault of technology are all more about, like, there's underlying stuff there that's originating in real life, um, if you want to make that distinction between, like, in real life and... Um, online <laughs> which I think young people don't you know they don't really the some of the conflict there is not having that barrier for young people isn't really so much there their virtual world is just as important as their social physical world um, yeah and so when we're tackling the mental health problems that can come from stuff online we've really got to look everywhere not just at the apps. So is that the main issue of interaction that parents need to understand better that in a way, it's far more fluid for young people. Their their physical life and their online life, in a way, is, is very much the same thing. Whereas yeah. older generations, we're still grappling with that. Yeah, I think that's that's like one of the biggest things that's come up for me from talking to young people about this. And I think, and it's totally also fair enough that that's something new and hard to deal with because if you grew up without that, that's quite something to get your head around. But through conversation um, and you know, we're, we're in a culture and society where it's very much adults teaching young people. And I think this is a really exciting opportunity for young people to be teaching adults something for once. Would you say um, that's also true in terms of the way people think and talk about mental health specifically, that young people are communicating about it in a, in a different way than their parents' generation? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, there's definitely more young people are growing up with a lot more awareness around mental health still work to be done I think still very much like more education needed um but social media and and the internet and the online world has given a lot of young people access to spaces and blogs and information where they can work out more you know learn more about mental health in maybe a way that their other age generations haven't had the opportunity yeah Mark, you seem to have a lot of those conversations on a more, in a way, on a more national level, um, particularly with advocacy and, and working in the media. There seems to be prominence in the national conversation. Are we somewhere good and are we still needing to go somewhere else, maybe in terms of taking things seriously? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really, really interesting time for mental health in general. We've, we've been through kind of in the last decade a kind of massive expansion of discussion about mental health. Some of that's been government-funded, some of that's been to do with charities. Um, But that's been kind of quite a broad message where it's been like we've been trying to get across that people with mental health difficulties aren't weird, people with mental health difficulties won't steal your children, people with mental health difficulties won't make your cows miscarry. Basically, people with mental health difficulties aren't an evil force that we need to lock away. And that's been quite a broad message. Kind of People have kind of got to a point where they... Most people kind of know it's a bit awful to be really horrible to people with mental health difficulties. Um, That's good. But what 
that's kind of left us with is a situation that's a little bit like, um, if you go back to the 80s and you think about anti-racism work <clears throat> in the 80s, people would maintain that they couldn't possibly be racist because they really liked Stevie Wonder. It's like, oh, I've got, I've got a person, uh, you know, I've got a friend who's got mental health difficulties or, you know, I thought about it, it's terrible to be awful to people. So, so there's a kind of situation where like, there's a lot more awareness, but there's not necessarily always something else coming behind that, which is more about specifics and more about difficulties. We've had a sort of situation where, in some ways, the rough edges of people's experience haven't, hasn't been fitted into this broad, be nicer to people situation. Because the experience of mental health difficulty is often grim, awful, lumpy, challenging. Um, we still don't quite know where that fits in, in society, and we can see that in a lot of our kind of public conversations that end up just being, well, you should just be nicer. And someone's going, yeah, but I'd really like to receive some treatment or I'd really like to not receive some treatment. And people go, well, that's, that's a thing. I could give you a hug, <laughs> but kind of I'm not quite sure what I'm meant to do now. Um, would you say that the mental health treatment is still largely a guessing game then? Uh, what, makes it, what makes changing anything in these attitudes, but also in the treatments, so difficult? I mean, treatment's a really weird thing. If you think about our kind of knowledge of the human brain, we kind of know more about the seabed than we do about how the brain works. And we kind of became aware of the brain at about the same time, because prior to the Victorian era, we thought there was nothing on the seabed at all. We thought that the sea was empty, apart from fish swimming about. Mm -hmm. And the same with brains. We thought, well, we can kind of just see some stuff, but they're not very complicated. So we've had 100, 150 years of kind of mucking about, trying to find things that work. But really, we're only at the very, very beginning of understanding how human brains work, how the human body works, and also what might be helpful to people. What's challenging is the treatments and approaches are supported by quite big professional bodies, they're supported by big organisations, they're supported by a large and long discourse. And when people come with experiences that differ from that, when they say, actually, this is meant to work for me, but it doesn't, often they are considered to be one complaining voice in the face of a load of evidence. And we kind of haven't got to what, you know, makes me sound like, you know, a, a, bit, of a bit of a knob talking about. We haven't got to the kind of granularity of being able to see individual people's experiences being really, really important. So we've, we've had, like, broad averages, and now we're seeing individual people's in experiences coming through. A lot of that to do with social media and access to the media that's happened over the last decade or so. Um, but we haven't got very good at seeing what some of those individual experiences tell us instead of the averages. Especially these changes that... Uh, it's almost a truism, but they're happening so fast that they do change the way we communicate about everything. Um, Alex, you work at, in one specific area, which is, is suicide, which is in some ways the, the kind of um, the dark doorstop at the end of this conversation. Why is it important uh, to bring this into the national conversation now in particular? Do you think things have changed that make it more urgent? I don't think, you know, there's nothing now that's made it more urgent. I think we're just in a similar way that mental health has kind of had this rise um, in terms of being, it's okay to talk about it, it's become destigmatized. stigmatised um, I think, you know, talking about suicide, suicide prevention 
is becoming less stigmatised. And that's, you know, a lot of what we're trying to do, just even in the name of the charity that, that I work for, Grassroots Suicide Prevention, we purposely put the word suicide in there because just talking about it using that word can make it seem lighter. It's, a, you know, it's, it's part of the human condition and it's something that we can talk about. You know, I think it's always been an issue and actually, you know, rates have gone down over the 20th century, um, in, in the UK at least. Um, but at the same time, I think maybe we're more ready to talk about it and more able to talk about it. Um, would, you, would you say the same thing as Mark about how there is this general sense of us trying to be a bit nicer mm. without necessarily actually engaging with... I think with, with suicide prevention, a lot of what it comes down to in terms of our work is understanding that these are kind of human feelings that is quite a common issue, actually. It's something that lots of people are affected by really what we need is confidence to talk about so we run a lot of training courses um, we run awareness raising projects to try and help people have those conversations just asking someone directly are you having thoughts of suicide that can be a really powerful thing to do it can help someone to actually open up um, in a way that they didn't realize they could I think it's also about asking in a way which is is direct like that you know, there's that cliche of saying, oh, you're not thinking of doing anything silly, which is kind of asking, but actually saying underneath that, I don't, I don't really want to hear. Um, it's asking in a way that goes beyond just a kind of acknowledgement. It's and being kind of able to, able to listen and having that confidence and also knowing that, you know, it's not your job necessarily if you ask someone and they say yes. You don't actually, you know, it's not then your responsibility to save their life. You can connect them up with further help you know it's it's kind of normalizing it i guess and normalizing the asking as a question separate from taking on a burden of responsibility yeah Yeah. absolutely are there particular myths about suicide that you feel it's important to expose at the moment yeah um sure and i mean on on the app that we've developed this the sale about there's actually a section that's just all around myths um and i guess with a subject like suicide which is not spoken about a great deal um it is, you know, it creates quite a fertile ground for myths and these kind of misconceptions to, to, to grow because people, you know, if they're not talking about it, they're not thinking about it, then they kind of go with the folklore, with the underlying, you know, these ideas. So um, one that we, we kind of experience a lot during training is just that idea that asking is going to put it in someone's mind. So if you ask about suicide and the person wasn't, thinking about suicide then suddenly you've you've kind of put that idea in their head and that's a real risk and there's a lot of evidence um that shows that that's that's not the case at all people are just not that impressionable and actually um you, by asking you've actually shown them that you care enough to ask and you know they they may say no but generally in a lot of cases the the response will be no but thank you for asking um i'm just got a lot of other things going on so that's that's one kind of significant myth. I mean, another one that I've already touched on is just that it's, you know, very rare, that it's not common. It's actually um, a lot more common than most people think. Uh, there's some statistics that say 5% of us, 1 in 20 of us, will have thoughts of suicide in a year. I mean, you know, the vast majority don't act on that, but it's something that's kind of part of being human. And just understanding that can make people feel a bit better about, you know, realising that this is this is not some strange thing so into this situation very quickly came an entirely new way of communicating through digital technology 
and in particular in communications through social media. And so I'd like to ask all three of you what opportunities you feel digital technology has, how it's changed things in the way you deal with your stuff and what positive opportunities it's presented with you. It's presented you with. Hmm, I don't know. We don't, I don't do so much online stuff, but we talk about it a lot. <laughs> um, so young people are often saying to me how how positive and, and fun that is to be on Snapchat um, and sending 200 Snapchats a day and being able to have that constant communication, constant access to people, being able to always know what other people are up to. These are things that they've been like telling me are positives and kind of enhancing their life. Um, in the media, and I think a lot of adults' worries about this, is that the, the 24-7 nature of that um, and the fact that you have access to your social group all the time maybe is not being such a positive thing for your mental health. People doing studies on just like usage in general and how much you're on your phone, but also the effects of constantly seeing your peer group and what they're doing. And also if your communication with your peers isn't a positive one of like great catching up, like love you lots, BFF, then and it's more about <laughs> um and it's and it's more and it's more bitchy say or if it's like or if it's not very nice then the fact that you can't escape that in the same way as if you left a school playground um could maybe be a negative thing but i think it's kind of useful to think about this communi- these communication devices as like extensions of what's happening already so if you've got like positive relationships with your friends it's a really nice way to continue that if you're getting bullied or if you're in a peer group where it's like you know people are trolling each other or it's or the conversations aren't so nice then there's the risk of that extending as well so yeah I would have brought the preconceptions of my generation to this and just assumed that it was a real there was a real negative there's something about taking I don't know taking school bullying and turning that into yeah. a 24-7 process but actually it sounds yeah. that sounds much more positive yeah well I mean also in in the terms of bullying and stuff it's like yes it's terrible that cyberbullying and the access to be able to do that all the time is means you can do that more like you know all day long but if we want to get to the root of that the root is still the same. The root is still the bullies. The root is still, like, the, the, the actions and the behaviour are the same. They've just been translated into a different medium. So we can blame technology, but I think it's more productive to look at the issue as a whole and just seeing it, technology as a more, as just another channel of this, which makes it bigger and worse. But, like, let's keep, the, keep it all in one conversation. Yeah. Mark, uh, you do a lot of advocacy online. You're quite a presence on social media. Is that, would you also view it in that kind of positive way? Or does the fact that social media can be a hotbed of um, loathing and hatred and prejudice cause sort of the people you interact with more problems than it is a benefit? I think it's kind, of, it's kind of weird for me when you start talking about social media as if social media is like this kind of separate room that we kind of go to now. It's like it's not. We're, we're in the age of... What, what, what you call ubiquitous computing or ubiquitous connection. Um, so social media is not a separate realm anymore. It's not another country. It's not something you visit on holiday. It's something that exists. And even if you don't take part in social media, it's influencing your life. Um, we have you know, at least two major political events in the world that have been kind of quite newsworthy that in some ways have rested entirely upon people's social media use. 
Look at Trump in the US, look at Brexit in the UK. Social media has been a very, very strong player in influencing public opinion, expressing public opinion. It's funny when you're talking about bullying and it being like individual. It's like we're now at a point where actually if you want to, you could automate large-scale bullying. Yeah, you, can, you could argue that Twitter is full of bots yeah. or the equivalent of bots that are ready to attack whoever they're set upon. So kind of social media is just a thing now. It's, it's, it's just the medium that we swim through. Um, for me, kind of one of the really interesting things about social media and digital is it ends isolation. And we actually don't really know what to do with the idea of ending isolation. We don't know what to do with the idea that we can't decide to be entirely individual anymore. So, like, for people with mental health difficulties, often the only way that you would run into a kind of wider set of thoughts or a wider discourse about mental health would be if you were lucky or unlucky enough to find yourself in an institution, in a hospital for a long amount of time and to meet other people who are in the same boat. Now, with social media, you have the opportunity to reach beyond the people you can touch with your hands. And that's been really, really important, I think, for this, this evolution of almost like a mental health public opinion. People are discovering that what they have is this great, massive, extended family of people who have similar experiences. And sometimes this is really good, sometimes this is really bad, sometimes it's an existential crisis in itself. Finding other people who may have had similar experiences to yourself. And kind of social media kind of works a lot like that. Because um, I, you know, I, I, I do spend a lot of time on social media, but pri- primarily on Twitter, shooting my mouth off about a whole variety of things. Um, and people seem to like it. I don't, get, you know, I don't get bullied very much on social media, but then I have social media privilege in that I'm a white male. Um, if I was a woman, you know, colleagues, friends, associates who are women, who aren't white, um, who are trans, they will get abuse first before their point is even made. And this is what we've got to kind of remember, that social media is a kind of accelerator of our existing social conditions, if you like. It, it it appeared that it might have been a leveller at one point of power imbalances when you could manage to get a reply from the Prime Minister by tweeting them. Those days are kind of gone a bit. And now we're looking at kind of the re-establishment of those big, those big power imbalances just in social media space. Um, Alex, uh, you, you have built an app. Not personally, I can't take no, I full credit for it, but, <laughs> but, but uh, no, yeah. I'd so effectively <laughs> you are already using a, a piece of digital technology as the kind of core, a, a core of your offering. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah absolutely. I mean... Um, <laughs> yeah, <it's>, good, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> How have you found that? <laughs> um, I definitely agree with the with much point about it, you know, accelerating, I think, what what's you know, already been going on in the, in the real world, as it were. Um, I mean, the app, it was built following consultation from, you know, we've got a, a big Twitter following and we, we use that, we use our social media to consult with people who had lived experience of suicide in order to, you know, make it the best it could be. So we got hundreds and hundreds of survey replies from people saying what they wanted in it. You know, we, we really kind of honed it down using, um, you know, the collective wisdom of all these different people so 
you know, and it's we've got incredible feedback from it. We know of lots of cases where the app has helped people literally to stay alive. It's I'll just go through some of the features of the app. You can dial through directly to lots of different helplines, such as Samaritans, um, Calm, Hopeline UK. There's a lot of different resources on there, kind of national and local. It's also got information, you know, how you might help someone else, kind of helpful things to say, what maybe not to say. Internet's got some kind of tools such as a safety plan so you can put in ideas of what you might do if you're having thoughts of suicide, kind of different strategies for staying safe. There's a, there's a feature called a kind of life box so you can put in pictures, photos of things that might help you to feel more positive, that are more life-affirming. So, I mean, you know, we feel like it's, it's been a really successful use of, of, you know, digital technology. I have to ask, I'm curious about your opening screen, because the first thing you see has to be a kind of disclaimer yeah. saying that this isn't a substitute for professional services, sure. which I can completely understand why you'd have to put it there. Yeah. Um, I could almost imagine that in the future you wouldn't need something like that. That's, mm. That almost seems like quite an old, old world way of thinking. Um, uh, is it still important to make that kind of distinction? Yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's a good question. I guess... You know, a lot of what the app is trying to do is trying to get someone to reach out for further support. So, you know, it's it's trying to put that there in the in the first kind of place that, you know, this is this is one tool among many, and actually, um, reaching out for for you know professional support or just support from family and friends, from another human being, um, you know, that's another part of what will be helpful to someone. I think there are you know different self help models out there and. Um, you know, potentially in the future there will be more kind of uh, kind of fuller versions that maybe wouldn't wouldn't have that disclaimer. I think we felt it was important to put it there just because it, if someone is in that state where they are considering suicide, that's a, that's a very important serious thing, and they you know they do really need to reach out and and find professional support. So yeah, it's it's, it's an interesting question. So Alex. Um, I only know this kind of top line thing about yeah. suicide, mm. uh, which is that um, it's vastly more men than women and that it's a very, um, there's a gender imbalance in the number of people that um, kill themselves and particularly that among younger men, it's, a, it's, a, it's like the, one of the major or the major cause of yeah. death for young, young. Absolutely. So, I mean, it's, yeah, the leading cause of death for men under 50 um, and... Uh, so seventy five percent of all suicides are men twenty five percent are women so it's it is there's definitely a, a kind of inequality there in terms of um gender um and we've we've worked, kind of worked to try and tackle that i mean there are various researched reasons why that is and one of the most significant is that men are more reluctant to seek help and that's a kind of underlying one that um I mean, other contributing factors are higher rates of alcohol abuse and also um, actually more lethal forms of self-harm. So, that, you know, they kind of come together as, as different. Um, but I think the one that we can really kind of focus on and, and we do at Grassroots is the idea of um, helping all people. But, you know, we've had campaigns, particularly for men, letting them know that it is OK to to kind of seek help, essentially. Um, and... You know, going back to that point around loss of autonomy and the fear of loss of autonomy, that's one of the potentially one of the um, benefits of an app is you know you can download this privately and you can look through it, and it's a first step to finding help. And 
it's, you know, again, you know, it's dispelling some of the myths and it's giving quick access to other support. And it, it's, it's a kind of a first step that people might feel more able to take than immediately going to their GP or going to A&E or something. So it's, it's kind of enabling people to, to seek help. And yeah, I mean, I think we do see that that could be potentially particularly beneficial for men and young men who may use digital media more. Also, I mean, um, trans people have a very high suicide rate as well, don't they? So yeah, it probably... it's, it's, kind of, it's, it's interesting, though, just to throw a spanner in the works yeah, of, of that thinking. Um, the prevalence um, is much higher for men in their 40s. Yeah. And actually the prevalence, unfortunately and sadly, is for people that we don't care about as much. Because kind of, it's, it's interesting yeah. that I, I was writing about this for The Guardian um, last week um, or week before. Um, we kind of, we, we have a notion that certain kinds of people experience very strong distress and that's reflected by um, the very sad decision for them to kill themselves. But often actually the prevalence, as in you know, the likelihood of it happening in a particular age group, isn't on, in the groups that we focus on. Mm. So it's interesting, we always kind of think about suicide in some ways as, as being a little bit about naivety or not knowing what to do and stuff like that. Mm. But actually the people who are more likely, sadly, to, to kill themselves are people who are older and effectively in middle age. Yeah, that's, that's definitely seen a, a, a peak. And I, just to, if I'm able to add to that, I'd say, you know, I think it's important as well um, when you start talking about groups is to really emphasise that suicide is complex and it's personal and everyone is individual and it can be helpful to look at these different at-risk groups but ultimately you don't want to get that to get in the way of actually just treating everyone as an individual and not, you know, saying this person doesn't fit that group then I'm not going to worry about them. So, yeah. so maybe this makes the question almost slightly wrong-headed. I was going to ask you, Mark, if you thought more generally that mental health and well-being is a gendered issue i i think you know the the, the unfortunate reality is everything's a gendered issue um, and we're not we're not going to escape from that um you know people differ from each other people experience different um different stresses um we tend and this this is something this is why i don't get booked on panels to talk about men's mental health very much um we tend to focus on men's mental health quite a lot which is really really weird considering that they're often least, less likely than women in that particular age group to experience mental health difficulties. And we kind of have this weird kind of men's rights thing that keeps coming up, because I ran into this. I wrote, I wrote an article about um, men's rights activists kind of betraying young men and um, presenting them that the way out of feeling suicidal and hopeless is to be picking awful to women. Mm. <laughs> um, and, and kind of men's rights activists will always say one thing. They'll say, well, actually... Regardless of what we're talking about here, it's men that, that kill themselves more often. That will trump anything we talk about in terms of equality. That will trump anything we talk about in terms of the experiences of women, the experiences of trans people, the experience of anyone who's not a bloke. And it, and it kind of, it, it, it's not necessarily the way to look at it because that point of view is often taken by people who would like to oppose steps towards equality by pointing out, oh, well, actually, it's men that are really losing out. Um, this is why I don't get booked on these panels, because they want me to say something very nice, etc., etc. I think men are often betrayed by that um, particularly kind of weaponised version of, 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 of gender, and it, oh, it 
gives me piles. <laughs> <laughs> well, it just gets in the way, doesn't it? I mean, what you're basically describing is a yet another one of these barriers where we could address a problem, but instead we'll, well get in the way of some other people's problems. Yeah, and, and, and it's, it's, it's really problematic. that There are different groups of people who have very, very differing mental health needs and, and also very, very differing situations. Um, and and to, to pick such a worn-out kind of divisive way of looking at it just really gets in, in as you say, gets in the way of, of talking about much more, I'm going to use the word again, granular, more detailed. It's a um, good word. It's a good word, granular. I, yeah, it's, it's, that's design thinking. Any, anyone in the audience who kind of does any design stuff will have heard granular. <laughs> or we, if they really the like sugar. We're in the basement of a global award-winning UX design agency who've let us use the space and they're, they're very good at granular as part of their language. <laughs> but but the, the, the sort of the, the, the gender thing around mental health is, is, you know, it is really interesting um, and really challenging and really difficult. And what everything comes down to is we pay attention in mental health to the people either we feel affinity for or the people who scare us. Mm. So there's some groups of people we wish to control and there's some groups of people who we think are like us and we care about. I was having a kind of discussion with a group of 13, 14-year-old girls specifically um, around what... It's, again, the sort of the narratives thing around, like, what messages and narratives are you getting about your digital... You know, about the social media use and, and your digital lives. And one of their biggest frustrations was how gendered the messages were. And they... And it just is this vicious cycle kind of feeding into it. So they were saying with sexting, we were having kind of a big rant about how sexting, all of the, all of the messages are very much focused to young girls and very much don't do it. Totally based around a culture of shame and slut shaming and, and women's, you know, women, young girls being sexual as being simultaneously kind of very encouraged by our sexualized culture, but also very frowned upon and you'll be expelled and you'll be humiliated and your, your life will be ruined. So they're getting these really conflicting messages about that. But also their main frustration was, it's all on us. You know, and same on cyberbullying. They were like, every single video we've been shown in assembly and every single time a teacher's been like, Can you, you know, come and talk to me about this. It's all on the girls, which they were very kind of... Um, mature in their thinking of how, firstly, how, how is this affecting us? And secondly, how is this affecting um, all the, you know, all the people who identify as bo- of boys in their year and don't want to, you know, what, what messages are they getting? Um, where do they feel like they can go for help? If, that's, if one of these things is happening to them, they're not seeing themselves as represented. Also, if they're perpe- anyone who's perpetuating these things... There's no onus on them either. So I think the narrative, I think a massive part of this is trying to rethink what are our messages, how gendered are they, how sexist are they, and what stereotypes are they just continuing? Yes, so sort of negotiating oppression tends to make you grow up quickly. Yeah, <laughs> they were great. I was like, he was so wise. But yeah, totally. Very true. We're coming to the end of the time. Uh, it's flown by. Um, I wanted to ask you how each of you, how you think, is there a particular way you think we could 
utilise digital technology specifically in the future? That is there something that would really help? Is there an innovation that you are really excited about or we are lacking? Uh, it's a... Just give me goosebumps because this is the kind of thing that I spend loads of time talking and thinking about. Um, basically, we could have anything we wanted if we had the political will to do it. Technology is advancing quickly enough that if we picture a possible future um, and we decide that's the one we want, we could work towards it. Mm-hmm. We probably won't because we don't really care that much about people with mental health difficulties. We could have entirely personalised medication that's based on knowing exactly what happens in your body, measuring that, looking after that, and prescribing you something that's specifically for you. We could have, we could have, you know, we could have apps that would help you to tell the difference between a hallucination and something that was real. Anything that comes from the experience of people with mental health difficulties and the things that they find difficult, we could solve by technology if we set out on that path now by listening to those direct experiences and thinking about how we might solve them using design, using technology and kind of having an end point. We won't, though, because the political will's not there and the commercial will isn't there. So it's not the technology that is either the opportunity or the problem. It's, in, in your view, it is the political will and also economics, yeah. cold, hard yes, it's economics. Yes, so, so, so we can build a robot corner shop that will follow you around the street, but we can't manage to build something that will help make sure that someone yeah. doesn't slightly overdose themselves on their medication regularly. <laughs> on a similar kind of pessimistic point, I think, um, <laughs> let's just end with cynicism there. Um, just, I think it is, imp- I think, yeah, although, it, although it's a bit cynical, I think it is really important to recognise where these, where the motivations for technology are coming from. Like, one of the biggest thing, another massive thing that I haven't really had time to talk about, but things, apps like Instagram are getting a lot of, you know, there's a lot of attention because they're of the kind of worries around body image and how and you know like how people are comparing themselves to other and kind of adding to this culture of constant like validation on and value on what you look like and loads of issues but you know are we who's making the app and who's benefiting from that um, yeah, who's got ownership of who's the, got ownership who's you know all, all of these questions like can't be ignored and if we want to think about the future um yeah i think we have to think about that as well That's, yeah it's a very good point just it, it just made me think when you're talking about who's profiting from these apps i mean an interesting point which is essentially a positive thing but it does it does make you think about where funding comes from is that the the app that we developed the funding uh, the massive amount of it came from network rail who you know, have a have a very significant issue with suicide, and they you know will want to prevent that. So, um, you know, there is you know there are ways of uh, finding funding for these kind of amazing projects that you were describing. I mean, it's it's very exciting, but it's I guess it's not always straightforward. Um, you found a vested interest. Yeah, exactly, and we you know we took advantage of that, and it kind of it made good sense. Does anybody have any burning questions for anyone on our panel? With the idea of uh, anonymous data on your app, isn't there the idea that you can use metrics from the interaction of your, your clients, essentially, mm. with your app um, to either improve your service, and obviously that's the thing that you would want to do, Yes, but... Isn't there also the, the danger of the, those metrics um, falling into 
more private hands like in, in, in the wider issue of mental health. Like Google has just started using American psychiatrists' um, mental health uh, questionnaire online, so it pops up if you if you enter feelings about depression. Okay. And um, yeah, it's a good question. I don't think we're that advanced in terms of the metrics we use. I mean, I don't think we. The only thing I think we monitor really is downloads and and where they are, but we kind of, you know, purposely made it very anonymous and very private because there was a, I don't know if you know about the app that was launched by the Samaritans, the Radar app, which did it's not do... I was going to ask yeah. about that and uh, then thought, oh my, uh, what in, in, just in case you'd done that as well, it wasn't 100%? No, no, no. So <laughs> that, I better not mention it they, just in they case were launched it was around, yours. Yeah, launched around the same idea and I think, you know, it was a... It was an idea. They were trying to obviously be really helpful on Twitter, monitoring people's conversations and looking for, you know, question, you know, uh, interactions that might be, uh, risk, you know, at risk, people who might need help. But ultimately, people just did not like the idea that it was invading their privacy. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we made a very purposeful decision that this is this free, uh, you know, and it's just private. Um, this is probably quite a similar question, um, but I remember reading last year about a sort of a bit of a scandal where Facebook apparently could uh, work out if people were feeling particularly low based on how they were posting and using the site, and they were selling advertising purportedly based on those kind of metrics. Would you favour uh, a future where social media like Facebook could actively intervene and perhaps alert people close to the person who was experiencing problems, or would you find that uh, harmful and, and probably quite counter-useful to all this depends on how you understand people to be using social media. Because we have this kind of weird assumption that kind of when people are using social media, they're only talking to people they know, and they're not kind of pitching to kind of a much more broader and wider audience. So what the, with the Samaritan's Radar app, which monitored Twitter and looked for words like depression and suicide and sadness, mm-hmm. um, what that did was it sent... It sent a message to people who were following the person on Twitter. So they weren't necessarily their friends. And it sort of said, oh, maybe you should go and check up on that person. Mm-hmm. The main reason that people didn't like it at the time was because it took away the space to discuss difficult things. Right, yeah. Because just because you want to talk about your mental health in public does not mean that you're making a cry for help. It might be. That might be exactly what you're doing. But if you have kind of these these kind of digital guard dogs that are parole, you know, patrolling around the boundaries of people's conversations, ready to jump in with, "Hey, why don't you go for a jog? <laughs> um, have you tried being happier?" Um, what you do is you kind of, could, yeah, do you want a hug? It's like you curtail the possibility of talking about difficult things in public. And for me, like the concern. With the, the Google thing, with the depression questionnaire that Google's serving to US Google users, and with the Facebook thing, is the kind of validation of algorithms that recognise people's behaviour. So the Google thing, for me, is they're asking you to do the questionnaire because they've got a fair idea what the usage patterns of someone with depression look like. And if you answer the questionnaire, you've just, you're validating their model. The question is, what happens with that algorithm? We like to think that large corporations are ultimately benign, but they might not be. There's lots, of, there's, lots of very, very good, there's lots of very good or very bad purposes you could put such an algorithm to. So you could, you could screen out everyone with depression from 
your workplace by knowing how they respond to emails, for instance. You know, it, we kind of we, we kind of put a lot of eggs in the basket of, of, of people who are non-state actors, not boundaried by any laws or any medical ethics, um, behaving in a benign way. Mm. And I think this, this is a really big, the big point we're at at the minute. Like, basically, anything you can think of now is more or less possible. Mm. The question is not could we, the question is should we, and kind of the pressure is not there, the, the sort of social pressure on the really specifics about using things like algorithms and decision-making, machine learning, um, just isn't quite there, because mm. most people kind of don't quite get it. This is the first time in many, many years, in a whole era, this is the first time that privacy has been a tough decision to make in your life. Like, throughout most of history... Mm-hmm. the choice to be private about certain things didn't involve a load of other sacrifices. But maybe the, there's this problem that we live, or particularly younger generations, live so much on platforms mm-hmm. that in order to make that decision, I'm not going to share that information, is a big decision. And maybe that is one of the... the... Although I was talking to, to someone this week about that, and there's kind of an issue with extracting yourself from the creation of algorithms through data in that... The, the final algorithm won't reflect people like you at all. Yeah. So say if, yeah, everyone, totally. if, say if everyone who's trans, for instance, was to opt out completely of sharing any data with Google or Facebook, all that would happen is the algorithms would be structured around the non-existence completely of trans people, yeah. which potentially would cause massive problems if those algorithms are used to make insurance calculations or to calculate you know, where resources are put or how healthcare should work which is potentially what machine learning is, is, is doing now, is making decisions about how resources are allocated and how decisions are made. It's a really interesting thing. So you kind of think, do you want to be like, you know, is, is being kind of data, you know, a data activist going in there and making as much possible data for your group of people, or is it completely pulling mm-hmm. your data out of the pot completely? I'm not sure at the minute is, is the answer. So it's going to take a while to find out, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> When and not, go not necessarily bad. a happy, a happy <laughs> while. Uh, and unfortunately, that's all we have time for. Um, would you like to quickly um, say how we can find you? Um, yeah, plug my Brighton Digital Festival event. Um, it's on. Uh, it's called The Secret Life of Teens, online I- images, identities and relationships. You can find it on the Brighton Digital Festival website. It's free, but please book a ticket. It's on the 4th and 12th of October. If you want to keep in touch with me speaking my brains and getting overexcited, then the best place is Twitter. I'm Mark1 in 4 on Twitter, and it's basically like this, but written. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and you can download the, the Stay Alive app on Android or Apple. It's free. Um, so if you're interested, you can download it there. Also, if you're in Brighton, we've got That's a free training session coming up on the 25th of October, which is just an hour at Brighton Junction. And that is all hope we have time to all. From Brighton Digital Festival, totallyradio.com and Lo-Fi Arts, you've been listening to This Side of Reality, our podcast about tech-led culture, art and the human. Thank you very much for listening and joining us. And thank you to our Three panellists, Alex Harvey, Tasha Mansley and Mark Brown. And uh, we were hosted by Clearleft upstairs who let us use this lovely space. So thank you everyone and thank you guys for being part of it. You're listening to Totally Radio. A different soundtrack. 